If you've been following with us in our studies of the Gospel of Matthew, the first Gospel of the New Testament, I hope one thing you may be impressed by is to understand that the paragraphs and the structure of any of the Gospels are not merely a random thing. It's not some kind of patchwork quilt of little remembrances from Jesus' life that these authors, Matthew in this case, randomly put together. There's very much a plan to it, a plan to the way Jesus lived his life, first of all, and revealed himself, and a plan to the way the Gospels were written. And we've been in a section that really is the the first major climax. If the cross and resurrection are the climax of the Gospel near the end, this, you might, if you pictured a line graph, there'd be a a high rise here, then a descent, and then a big rise again at the end. And these events of 16 and 17 are extremely climactic as we've been looking at what happens. This morning, one of the great miraculous scenes of the Bible, no less miraculous than the parting of the Red Sea or the raising of the dead, is what took place on what we call the Mountain of Transfiguration. Listen as I read the first nine verses of Matthew 17, and this is God's holy word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But while he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is God's holy word. Father, let us understand from epic things that you have revealed what it is you are teaching us about this great son of yours. We ask in his name, amen. There are more than a few supreme moments in the Bible that take place on mountaintops. You can probably think of a few with Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, that great day when God was to reveal his law to Moses, who was allowed to approach a mountain with phenomena happening upon it of fire and smoke and rumblings of the ground that so great that the people dared not even approach it when Moses went up. And then Moses came back with the law of God and with his face literally shining at what he had witnessed. 
Maybe you think of Mount Carmel where Elijah had a big confrontation with the priests of the false but popular god Baal. And they tried all their incantations and shrieks and dances to get their god to respond. And the true god of heaven responded to the prayers of Elijah and sent fire upon a sacrifice. Maybe you think of something that was not such a high mountain, but what we call the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus spoke, probably just from a rather low hill near the village of Capernaum, but gave us those epic words that we've discussed and studied in this book of Matthew. You and I travel to mountains because we like to see the amazing view. We want to see the world from a longer gaze. And whether that be in the Appalachians or the Blue Ridge or Colorado Rockies or Swiss Alps, whatever it is, our perspective is enlarged when we look out from some mountain vista and see the countryside below us and understand the world and maybe have a bit of wonder and worship even at the beauty of what we behold in an eagle's eye view. Well, our text in Matthew 17 does open such a view, but it's not just from a prominent earthly height. In fact, the elevation really didn't have anything to do with it. The mountain of transfiguration of Jesus, as God revealed here a brief glimpse into the throne room of eternity, is a mountainside view the like of which the world has never seen anything to compare. Last time in Matthew 16, we remember the disciples had correctly confessed Jesus to be the Christ, the Son of the God who lives. That was a very important moment. And then following that, Jesus said that he must go to a cross to die, seeming to contradict the idea of being the the Messiah. Well, Peter jumped in and contradicted that, said, no, Lord, you won't ever do that. And he was vehemently rebuked for his, his arrogance and his presumption. I didn't stress last time something that said in verse 38, the very last verse of chapter 16. For after announcing the cross and putting Peter in his place, we read there, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here, you people, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, that prophecy began to be fulfilled right away. Already here in chapter 17, we begin a chain of marvelous events with the transfiguration. Later, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the day of Pentecost with the coming of the power of the Holy Spirit. And these things, we believe, were what he was talking about, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom in these dramatic events. Those disciples did live to see the things that Jesus predicted they would see. Well, this transfiguration certainly provided a massive encouragement to faith that was confused about the cross that Jesus had announced. It did more than that, though. It lifted a corner of the human obscurity of the man Jesus to show his divine and preexistent glory 
as the very Son of God. And I think it gave an assurance that this cross he had talked about was not something strange or or something mistaken, but rather that that cross in all of its agony and shame and blood that it would involve and the treachery that it took to accomplish it, that very earthly, terrible event went along with and could be paired with the regal, glorious, searing to the eye splendor of the divine Son of God who was truly God and truly man. Many have read or seen the films of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings saga. And if you have, you know a character in that named Aragorn. Aragorn's a very central character, but when you first meet him, he's extremely obscure. In fact, he appears to be suspicious, uh, not somebody you want to associate with, dressed in rough clothes of a woodsman, a scout, a man who lives out in the wild by himself. But gradually, gradually, Aragorn is revealed in the story as someone quite different. He is actually the heir to the prestigious throne of Middle-earth. He will be the returning king that everyone was waiting for. We need to understand that kind of a view of Christ in the Gospels. There's so much obscurity surrounding him, so much ordinariness. Isaiah even predicted it. There was nothing lovely about him. There was nothing remarkable. He wouldn't have made the cover of any magazine. He was just a man, a simple peasant man. In fact, a man that people despise because of his simple upbringing and his lack of a university education. And yet we're seeing the curtains being lifted and we're seeing that he's something so much more than a man. And here, all of a sudden, it blazes through. He is the son of the pre-existent God. He himself is God. We need both those views. We need the real man, and we need the real God in one person to have the balanced view of Christ that the gospel wants to reveal to us. Well, it's, it's amazing when I think about it how simple this miracle is reported. Verse 2 actually reports the entire miraculous aspect of it in one single, actually two sentences in English. It's one sentence in the original And we read it so simply. Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes were white as the light. And then we read, there appeared also Moses and Elijah talking with him. How could you report more stunning things in fewer words than that? The first point we want to look at today is that Jesus, who went to the cross, is Jesus the Lord of glory. By the way, Matthew and Mark and Luke, all three report this event as being straightforward history. John does not report it for his own reasons. His gospel is focused in somewhat different manner. But the word here is that Jesus was transfigured. The word in the original is metamorpho. You can guess what that means, metamorphosis. The process of a being undergoing dramatic change. You might think of the larva of a caterpillar 
uh, you know, going through that amazing process you learn about in science and becoming a beautiful butterfly. That's metamorphosis. And interestingly, the word for light used in verse 2 is phos. You would spell it P-H-O-S. Giving words like phosphorescent, glowing, shining from its own substance, not from some light shined on it. Well, we can read in Exodus 34 about Moses leaving Mount Sinai after he had encountered God and heard the law of God and recorded it. And it says that Moses came from the mountain, a mere man allowed to come into that presence. What he saw, what he encountered cannot be told. But his face actually bore an afterglow of that experience that lasted for weeks. In fact, people didn't want to look. They, they drew back. They said, what is it? What is this? And, and Moses wore a veil for a while until that glow left his face. What we have here with Jesus is different. We believe that his dazzling appearance does not come from reflected light from outside of him. It comes from the essence of what he was. And suddenly that is, the, the, you know, whatever curtain was around that, it was lifted so that we could see what he was before he was incarnate in the womb of a virgin. And here he is now in a kind of incandescence that is not like anything we know of a human being. And the only conclusion we can draw is that this is something of the the splendor and the glory of what God is. The essence of what he was within himself was now briefly visible on the outside of him. Although John does not report the incident in his gospel, as I said, it's not as though he's ignorant of it. In fact, he alludes to it in the first chapter of John 1.14. John, who was there, says, We have seen his glory. Glory as of the one and only who came from the Father. You see what John is saying? This wasn't something a human being could contrive. This was no trick of makeup or, or costuming. It was something we can only attribute to being the one and only sent from God. And in that same Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 5, later on Jesus is praying in the high priestly prayer. You might remember that there he prayed, and one of the things he said to the Father was, Father, let me be restored to the glory that I had with you before the world began. He alluded to this, this which was seen in a glimpse here in the middle of the gospel was what he had had before and what he would obtain again. Well, if the eye-popping wonderment of what Jesus looked like wasn't enough here, there's more. Two individuals appeared to be talking with him, and the report, the account is straightforward that they were Moses and Elijah. How does somebody know that? I'll refer to that a little bit later on. But they were Moses and Elijah, representatives of the law of God and the prophecy of God. And Luke's account has a little incident added when he tells in Luke 9. He says, they spoke to Jesus about his departure soon to be fulfilled at Jerusalem. They were talking about the cross. Think of it. The representatives of God's ancient law 
and of prophecy. In other words, the whole of the Old Testament, these two men were the representatives, were there talking to Jesus about the cross. Those who had testified about it, who saw it from far away and didn't even know exactly what it was, Elijah represents prophecy like that of Isaiah that that talks about him being crushed by God and smitten. And they wrote that, but they weren't sure how it would all be seen or how it would turn out. But now what was in the dim future for them is right there before them. This indeed is like drawing back the stage curtains to let men see what we call the incarnation, the enfleshment of God. It's almost as though Jesus slips the bounds of of time and of flesh, and, and those things just don't matter for a moment, and you see what he is without time and flesh being boundaries upon him. This is what he was before he was born. And this is what he is ever since his ascension to the Father's right hand. If you rent a movie or or go to a movie in the theater, you know, of course, that you get previews. I hardly ever see a movie without previews before. These little short clips, sometimes they're very annoying. But you get a preview of a coming attraction. I tend to think of this scene as a preview. It's a short visible preview, really, of the second coming of Christ, of Jesus Christ as he is now and will be seen. And one great hymn writer spoke about it and called it the king there in his beauty without a veil between, seen by the eyes of men as the Scripture promises he will be. We're not talking about two different Jesus Christs. That's very important. He doesn't have a split personality. The man who said he would go to a cross is this man, the man who is the divine Son of God. Hebrews chapter 12 reports something about what was in the mind of Christ as he went to the cross. It says of him who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. What is that, the joy that was set before him? It was a goal that he would attain once he got past the horror of the cross. Well, what was it? Well, I think here you see it. The joy of regaining what he was at the Father's hand. The joy of being once again in uncompromised fellowship with his Father and in all the glory and splendor that he always had been from the beginning of time or before time began. We can say that Jesus Christ exists in this same dazzling glory right now. His flesh that was mutilated at that cross by whips and nails, that body that was lifeless when they took it down and laid it in a tomb, that body today is glorified and exhibits grandeur beyond our powers to possibly imagine what it looks like. And if we saw Christ as he was right now, we too would fall down at his feet and worship him. Jesus who went to the cross is also Jesus the Lord of glory. Secondly, 
I'd ask you to find here that the Father certifies to us that Jesus speaks with his own absolute authority. Now, once more, Peter jumps in. If I were Peter, I wouldn't be jumping in by this point in time. You would think he would have learned. You remember how he jumped in and confessed Christ, and he got it right. That's where he got all his confidence from, I think, because he made that great confession, you are the Christ, son of the living God, and Jesus blessed him for it and said, right, Peter. You know, you didn't learn this just because you're a smart man. Heaven revealed it to you. But then he turned around, and we saw last time as Jesus announced the cross, and he said, no, 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 you won't do that. And Jesus said, you devil, get out of the way. I would have been hesitant to speak. I think actually he was hesitant because if you sense the the phrasing here, he doesn't uh, speak quite so impudently. It's more of a suggestion or, Lord, if uh, you wanted, we could do this. Wouldn't it be a fine thing, this great thing you've allowed us to see? Lord, if you wanted... We could easily build three shelters here, three roadside chapels, and just sit down and, and inaugurate, you know, the seminary of the mountainside and stay right here. Actually, it was a habit in that day of nomadic peoples who lived in tents that sometimes if they pitched their tent in a location for any period of time, they would take some wood and build a small shelter, or a a booth, you could call it. A booth meant a little bit different thing then than it does now. And you know, of course, there's a a festival near this time of year, a Jewish festival, the Feast of Booths, that has a, a significance related to this. But they would build these little shelters beside their tents as residences for guests. They wanted to honor their guests and say, you shouldn't sleep just under a tent, under camel skin. I give you a shelter of wood, a finer place to stay. That may have been what Peter had in mind, the idea, well, let's, we've just seen honored guests here. We need, to, we need to somehow create a memorial for them or a place for them to dwell if they want to stay. In so many words, Peter was saying, Lord, this is such a great thing. We don't want to leave here. But we don't want to have to go back to the world of those demanding crowds who bring us demon-possessed people and illnesses and, and plague us all day and all night, by the way, I, The very next thing that happens in this gospel as they descend from this glorious scene is the healing of an epileptic boy possessed by a demon. And Peter was kind of saying, we don't want that. We want to stay on this mountain. Let us prolong this wonderful thing. And you know, I I really think that he believed he was doing Jesus a great honor by saying, Jesus Why, we'll create three booths of equal size, and you'll have one the same size as Moses and Elijah. He probably thought this was great. He's saying, Jesus, you're as great as Moses and Elijah. But he still didn't get it, did he? Peter needed to learn the crucial lesson that awaits other Christian leaders along the way, that human exertions and human projects that we might devise to do to honor our Lord are far less important than simply listening to Him and sitting quietly at the feet of His Word to hear what He says. 
By the way, Peter was still in the back of his mind opposed to the plan of the cross, and he probably thought, here's a way I can keep Jesus on the mountain. After all, he can't go to Jerusalem to get executed if he's staying here in this nice resort, retreat center that I will build. Well, the building program fell apart pretty quickly. As we read that a bright cloud enveloped them, and more than that, a voice came from the cloud. What did that voice sound like? I have no idea. But the voice said, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. And then three words, listen to him. Any Jew who knew his Bible, and they did know their Bible, knew what the bright cloud was. Because there's no place in all of the Scripture where this cloud had been reported in the New Testament so far. And they would immediately think of it and remember the bright cloud called Shekinah that came and dwelt upon the tabernacle in the wilderness and then briefly upon Solomon's temple in Jerusalem and and those rare occasions when God gave a visible manifestation of the nearness of his presence. When God wanted to let people actually see that God is present, this is what he gave them, this cloud. So we can't exactly think of what a bright cloud is. Clouds aren't bright when we see them. They're dark, basically, or they may be white, but unless the sun is really reflecting on them, they're not that bright. We can look at them all right. This is a cloud that is so bright, you can't really even look at it. And it represents the presence of God. People instinctively understood that. They didn't have to be told that. They just hit the deck. And they stayed on the deck when out of the bright cloud came a voice. An audible voice saying the same thing that was heard before at the baptism of Jesus, the only other time in the gospel it was heard, saying virtually the same words. I'll paraphrase, this is my priceless son. He has no equal. He is doing what I have called him to do, so stop talking and listen to him because he speaks with my own authority. If I think of an application to the church today, I think it is that we become very, very busy in Christian circles and in the church doing projects that we say are for God. And we say, oh, if we do this project and achieve it right and get enough people to come to it or respond to it, people will experience something good from God. But many times I think our projects are like Peter's desire to build booths. It's not God's project unless we have first heard from his word that this is what he wants. And he bids us before anything else to listen to that word whose final authority is in Jesus the Son. If Jesus the Son tells disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, believe it. If he says he will be raised up on the third day, count on it. And if he tells you to take up your own cross and that you will have to suffer to be his disciple, it won't be an easy walk, you will have to sacrifice, you might get hurt and rejected, you might even die, 
then you better believe that too and undertake it in the joy of obedience to the one who speaks for the Father himself. Hebrews 1.1, after all, says that, doesn't it? When it opens that great letter of Hebrews and says, in many and diverse ways God has spoken in the past by his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken by his Son. The last word, the best word, the authoritative word. And here we have this amazing, these amazing miracles all piled into these few verses. Not just the appearance of Jesus, not just Moses and Elijah, but an audible voice that speaks only twice in the New Testament. And both times it says, this is my son, pay attention to him, he's the one you have to focus everything upon. The rare voice of God tells us that the voice of Christ is the final authority. Now then, we go to a conclusion as we look at verse 8 of this passage. Jesus was compassionate. He knew the disciples had been pretty severely traumatized by all this, and his compassion shows as he raises them up And he he comes and touches them, it says in verse 7. Get up. Don't be afraid. And then we read that they saw no one. Moses and Elijah were gone. They saw no one but Jesus. I like the King James way of saying it, even though it's a little ungrammatical in modern speech. The King James reads there, they saw Jesus only My third point is this, that all of Scripture actually comes down to those two words, Jesus only. Moses and Elijah, great heroes of faith, great men of God to be respected, surely. They were chosen to be there that particular day to show that the one who would be left after they faded out was greater than them. Because Jesus only is greater than the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to him. I can't even imagine the thrill of of Moses and Elijah. What had their privileges been in heaven to that moment? I don't know. But here they were, people who had seen things from afar, and now they understand that God's plan is, is on the brink of unrolling its most dramatic chapter. And here they get to talk to the Son the Lamb of God, the one who will enact it all. Hebrews 11 says, men of faith like them in particular died without seeing the one they hoped for. Now they were talking to him. By the way, I want to insert something that is not the main meaning of this passage. You'd probably call it an incidental lesson or application, but I think it's one worth noting. And that is this. But I think the recognizable forms of Moses and Elijah here are actually proofs of God's preservation of his people who have died and gone on before, and they act in a sort of pledge of the resurrection bodies that all God's saints, including us, will have one day. Moses had been dead 1,480 years exactly from this day. Elijah, some 900 years before this, his death wasn't even recorded. You remember he was taken up in some amazing way in a whirlwind. 
No one witnessed his death. But here's the point. People who had never met Moses or Elijah, there weren't any photographs of Moses and Elijah around, you know. Uh, had a, a burial yesterday at the Conestoga Memorial Park in the Garden of the Apostles. And the Garden of the Apostles at Conestoga Memorial Park has four huge statues, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I playfully thought to myself, oh, I finally know what they look like. Well, of course that's not what they look like. It's an artist's rendition. Nobody had a rendition of what Moses looked like or Elijah looked like, but the text tells us that they were known. I believe that's important. I believe that's instructing us that the dead in in Christ are intuitively known to one another and to all who behold them. These are not ghosts. And I believe there's a lesson here that says that while the, the, the condition of those who have died before us in Christ, including our own loved ones, it's mysterious to a certain point, and yet it, it carries the assurance that Christ guaranteed a resurrection life, and we're going to see those people, and we're going to know those people, and guess what? We won't need name tags. We'll know one another. We'll know, even as we are known, under God's protection and everlasting love, all the saints are safe in him who have gone before us. Well, at the end of the transfiguration, Jesus is the only one left in sight. And I believe God wants his church to reverence Christ the Son more than it reverences any past leader, any great person, any project it is called to do. We must be rigorously Christ-centered people because Christ is the key to correct Bible interpretation. You don't understand the Bible if you're not looking for Christ. That includes the book of Leviticus. That includes Ezekiel and Genesis and Psalms. Look for Christ, and you'll understand those books. He is the scarlet thread. His cross, his death, his resurrection is the thread that weaves the Bible together. Dr. Boyce, James Boyce, commented on this passage, and he said this, especially about Peter's project. He says, we sometimes hear people say in a crisis situation, don't just stand there, do something. Well, that was Peter. He'd never just stand there. He would always do something. But Boyce said, here, God's word to the apostles is, stop doing foolish things and just stand there. And here, my son. And Peter did get it, by the way, eventually. The mature apostle Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.16 about this memorable day. Here's what he said. We do not follow cleverly designed tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory when the voice came to him out of the majestic glory saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Peter said, we ourselves heard that voice when we were with him on the holy mountain. The transfiguration of Christ is like a mirror in which Christianity is is all unified right there in that scene. 
The living and the dead are seen as being one in Christ. The old covenant and the new covenant are joined together and found to be inseparable. The dreadful cross and future heavenly glory are woven out of one piece of fabric here. Our human nature is promised that it is bound for glory. And we're also told in this short scene that the Father allowed his final word to be spoken in Jesus. That's where we can find out what the Father wants us to know. Ladies and gentlemen, by the gift of faith, every believer has been to that mountaintop. And we can say, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Furthermore, 2 Corinthians 3 tells us this. We who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. In other words, God's intention for the Christian is this, that by degree throughout your lifetime as Christ dwells in you, you are gradually being transfigured to be more and more like him. And that project is going to be over one day, for you will be like him when you see him as he is. Praise God. Let us pray. Father, great wonders are here hard maybe for us to believe in the mundane events of our world that such a scene could ever be witnessed, but you gave it to us by witnesses who attest to it. Oh, how we thank you for the wonder that was Jesus Christ, God in man. Help us to keep him at the center, to listen to him, to revere him, to turn to him before any human leader or advisor. May he get all the praise in Jesus' name.